Morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Keelan, and I'll be just doing the Bible reading this morning. Um, we're going through Romans 3, 1 through 20, and I'll be reading from the NIV. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I condemned? Why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as someone as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that God uh, that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery marks their way. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, rather through the law we become conscious of our sin. Thank you, Keelan. It is such a privilege to be able to open the scriptures with you this morning. I know of no other opportunity we have in this life to draw as close to the heart of God than by simply bringing ourselves under his truth and letting the spirit of God apply that truth to our lives. And it is a great privilege uh, that this church allows me to do that this morning. Would you uh, pray with me as we open uh, this message? Our Father, we have uh, sung to you, we have confessed to you, and we have given to you. We are giving to you, Lord. Uh, We pray now that you would speak to us through this, your word, and that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we might have 
this truth applied to our hearts so that we could be conformed more and more to the image of Christ, both as individuals and as a community of worshipers. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in a series that is looking at the book of Romans, and we're doing it backwards, uh, although by now we've gone through most of it, and so it feels like we're just going forwards now. Um, and the subtitle of this series is called Forming the Transformed Community. And what you need to know is that Paul's writing to a small collection of churches in the heart of the Roman Empire. And in these churches are people from diverse backgrounds, both ethnically, religiously, uh, socially, that they, they live different lives, they're different groups of people, and Paul is trying to show them how they've entered into this great story, this great community that God is building and creating, a community that's going to last forever into eternity. And what I'm excited about is that you and I are invited into that community as well. That ought to just make you elated. But because this is so unnatural to us, we are coming to this section of the scriptures where Paul is beginning to really write the story. And if you've been uh, a fan of literature or, or, or movies, you know that there's, there's no good story that doesn't actually have at its core attention. People don't write songs about having porridge for breakfast. There's no tension in porridge, right? There's no tension in that cheeseburger you had for lunch, right? Tension comes when you realize that there's something about you, your identity, something about who you are, something about being a part of this story that, that may be hanging in the balance. And so this section that we come to is a section that is meant to heighten that tension. This part of the book of Romans, we're looking at what we all have in common as a part of this family of God. We, we saw two weeks ago that, that we, all, we all sort of look like a rebel. We all resemble a rebel. Last week we saw that we all have the same expectation put upon us by our Father in heaven, which is that there is a righteous standard that we're to live up to. And here we're going to see that a further sort of trait that we share in common together is this chronic condition which we call sin. The Bible calls sin. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Romans chapter 3, 1 to 20. If you don't have a Bible, uh, put your hand up. One of our deacons at the back will give you a Bible. Uh, or you might have a smartphone. I encourage you, open the word as I'm talking about it. Ultimately, what I say is irrelevant if it does not conform to what God has said in the scriptures. So it's a good practice for you to have the scriptures open as we are meditating and going through this together. Uh, last week we saw that uh, we asked the question, well, on what basis can we truly be called God's children? And this week we saw that we are God's children if, so last week we saw we're God's children if we're righteous, like our Father. And we saw that God has this standard of rightness, straightness, of a life that is morally, spiritually, relationally, ethically, financially, existentially pure. And that if we're going to rightly be called his children, then, then we need to match that standard of purity. 
And it's not about simply conforming to a religious practice or what tradition you came out of, but it's about fitting that standard of being righteous to the core. This week, our big question is, how do we account for our unrighteous condition? Now, you have to realize that this is sort of the third major phase in Paul's argument here. So if you're just joining us today and you're saying, well, you know, am I unrighteous? I don't know. Paul has gone at length to show that nobody is perfect and that actually if you look hard enough, you'll see the wrath of God is being revealed right now. God's wrath is his displeasure, his holy displeasure at humanity's sinfulness. And by sin, we mean our unrighteousness. So the question this morning is, how are we going to account for our unrighteous condition? How do we account for that? Uh, The big idea in terms of where we're going today is that sin's power, which is at work within us, will not excuse us from God's judgment. Paul's going to explain for us that the reason we're in this chronic condition of sinfulness is because there is a power residing within us that is unholy. And it bends us, in Luther's words, it bends us towards the earth and away from heaven. It bends us to sin, it bends us, bends us into disordered living, disordered righteous, uh, away from righteousness, excuse me. Uh, I don't know where I saw it. It's hard to sort of keep track of where you see things these days. Maybe I'm scrolling too fast. Maybe, maybe I'm not paying close enough attention. I think I probably saw it on, you know, a Facebook meme going around somewhere. And, and it's something along the lines of nobody's perfect and that's okay. Nobody's perfect and that's okay. And, and with all due respect to, I think, the sentiment in that to, to sort of relate to everyone's condition, God says nobody's perfect and that's not okay. Now, Paul is going to begin to unpack what people might say in response. He has a dialogue partner, if you will, that he's engaging with here. So... Our outline today, Paul's been trying to show that God's wrath is being revealed against this this condition that we have called sin. He's going to look at the excuses that people make, which is basically saying God's judgment is unfair. Then he's going to say the reason, the reason why we are in this condition, which is we're under sin's power. And then in verses 10 to 20, which is really the conclusion, he really shows and unpacks the extent of our condition. How, doctor, tell me, how bad is it? Is my sinfulness a grade one, a grade two, a grade three, a grade four? What, what, what's, how bad is this? Paul's going to unpack that in the end. But first, the, the excuses. So Paul, uh, sorry, before we do that, just again setting the context Paul's writing this letter because he realizes everyone needs to know about Jesus. The good news is worth hearing because in it, God unleashes his power to save. That's important. Sin has a power, but God has a power as well. And God's power is being revealed in the righteous, in in the gospel. 
Now, God unveils this righteousness in two ways, in salvation and in wrath. And then in chapter, the second half of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, Paul's showing that God's wrath is revealed against all the unrighteousness of humanity, that's Jew and Gentile. People who are a part of the religion and people who are not a part of the religion. People who are in the covenant and people who are out of the covenant. God's, unright, uh, God's righteous judgment was being revealed on them. And then finally, he showed last week that God's praise is reserved for those who are righteous to the core. So much so that if, it's not simply a matter of going through the motions. It's not simply a matter of signing the creed or confession, being confirmed, or if you were a Jew, being circumcised, or, or having that ethnic heritage. It wasn't, it wasn't that. Paul said if, if, you, if you tick the boxes externally, but internally the, there is a heart that is evil and corrupt, you might as well not even call yourself a part of his people. To which Paul now anticipates some people making objections. You can see them with their hand at the back. Hold on a second here. (laughs) Hold on. So, what was that whole Old Testament all about? What's the point of God calling these people if at the end he's going to judge them and he's not going to save them? I mean, if that's the case, isn't that a failure on God's promise? I mean, God's the one who initiated that promise. Is it his promise that failed, that didn't work? If his chosen people didn't meet the standard? And, and Paul's, Paul's imaginary dialogue partner is continuing to double down on this. He says, well, and if, if the sin of these people revealed God's holiness, right? Like, like stars stand out against a... Uh, a black night sky, if, if God's holiness is seen better in sinfulness, then is it really fair of God to judge people? I mean, it's really just enhancing his holiness, isn't it? And you can see, well, if God actually gets glorified, like if people look at God and they say, wow, God, you're even more amazing because nobody else is righteous, but you are righteous and, and look how good and holy you are. Well, then why would he condemn me for something that benefits him? It's kind of like, well, God, you made the rules, and I don't fit the rules, and the rules feel like they make you look like you're really good at this game, so why are you telling me that I always have to lose? And ultimately, he gets to the person who says, well, should we just keep on sinning? Like, I mean, honestly, if... If, Paul, you're saying good's going to come out of all of this and, 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 and look what happened, then should we just keep disobeying God? Have you had some of these questions yourself? Have you wondered some of these things yourself? Maybe in your heart you're like, mm. <laughs> Paul responds in verses 1 to 8 to these objections. He, he says... Note with you here, he says, you know, what what value is there in being a Jew? Verse 2, there's much in every way. Yes, it's tremendous value in being a part of the Jewish uh, heritage, being a part of the chosen people. He says, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. Paul says, 
You can't downplay or diminish the value of actually receiving revelation from God. In Deuteronomy, God tells his people, he says, you of all people have your God close to you. He's near to you. You can, you can know him and what he is like. Paul then goes on to say, look, <laughs> the unfaithfulness of people doesn't make God a liar. In other words, is the, is the problem with God's promise? And he says, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. Now, our generation needs to hear this because we think that truth is something that is shaped and crafted and molded and it is personalized. And so every day you wake up and along with your wheat bix and your orange juice, whatever you have in the morning, you take your dose of your truth. And you live by that for the rest of the day. And if anybody comes across your path and says, you know what? Doesn't seem to fit with that. All you need to tell them is, hey, this is my truth. Well, Paul's understanding is it doesn't matter actually because the whole world could believe a lie. That doesn't make God untrue. Truth is not determined by popular opinion. And he quotes Psalm 51 here, the psalm that David wrote after he committed that terrible sin of having adultery with Bathsheba and then having her husband basically murdered, assassinated. And when David is writing that psalm, he says, he says, God, against you, you only have I sinned so that you are proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. David confesses and he says, God, I need to confess. This is wrong. It's wrong and it shows that you're right. Paul goes on to say that a multitude of wrongs doesn't change God's standard of what's right. This isn't like the teacher who's given the homework and realized the next day when all the students come back and they can't get past problem number four. And they said, oh, you know what? The homework was probably a bit too hard. Sorry, let's back it off. This isn't like that. It's right or it's wrong. And so the multiplicity of wrongs doesn't actually change what the standard of righteousness is. And Paul asks a very compelling question. Verse 5, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? Is God unjust in bringing his wrath? Paul can't even, like, he's, he's struggling to write this. He just has to pause and say, I, I, I'm not really thinking as a Christian person here. <laughs> I'm talking this from a human level. And verse 6, he answers it, certainly not. If that was so, how could God judge the world? Do we want God to put things right? Do we want God to fix the suffering, to fix the pain, to fix the evil in this world? Well, by what measure is he going to do that? Or do we really presume to say, I want him to fix my evil or fix the evil that affects me, but don't fix the evil within me? That's pretty childish. I wish I never thought that. but I do. Paul goes on to say that to condone unrighteousness, it would be a betrayal of God's glory. It's inconsistent with his justice. 
it, it, Paul just, it's like, he just sort of hears this thing going on and he's just, by the time he gets to verse eight, he's just like, oh my goodness, just like, just shut up. <laughs> like, you, you, deserve, you deserve the condemnation. You know what, you, there's a reason why, there's a reason why you're not a part of this believing community. He says to this imagined person. Then he moves to verse nine, which is a huge, probably the summary that he's been building to in all of it. He says in verse nine, he says, what shall we conclude? Do we have any advantage? That is the Jews, not at all. So no, he's kind of flip-flopped. You're like, I thought you said there was an advantage. Well, look, on the balance of everything, yeah, there's an advantage in being a Jew because you get to hear the words of God. But when it comes to actually being declared righteous, does the Jew have an extra head start? No. There's no advantage. In the sphere of being right with God, in the sphere of justification, Paul says, no, the Jew and the Gentile are in the same pit together. And then what Paul does is, he says, we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And that is a very important phrase. He doesn't simply say, we all sin, which would be true. He's not talking about sin simply as an act or a thought that is unrighteous. Here he begins to attribute to sin an oppressive force. Something that we cannot get away from. And Paul says this is really the reason for our plight. We share this whole condition. We inherit it from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And from that moment, from that time, sin has had power. It is reigning. It has dominion. It has an oppressive force. Anybody like to watch wrestling? Maybe you're too embarrassed to put your hands up. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was a time in my life I enjoyed a bit of, uh, you know, at the time it was called like WWF, right? Now it's, I don't know what letters they use now. They keep changing it all the time. And, uh, and, and, and one of my favorite moments in wrestling, and, and I'd like to say I always knew it was scripted. Now, if I spoil something for you, I'm sorry. Um, but I, I like to say I always knew it was scripted, but still there's something about it that just sort of got me. And... One of my favorite parts is when the person would be in this submissive hold, right? And, and I'll never forget, Brett the Hitman Hart, right? Brett the Hitman Hart, he had this move called the sharpshooter, and, and, and he had the person down on their face, and he's bending their head back, and he's twisting their legs, and the person is just like, I can't do anything. And you're watching as the person is slowly reaching towards the sideline towards outside the ring and their partner, their tag team partner on the other end is like, if I can just, if you can just tag me in. Paul pictures us like, like that wrestler who's in that submissive hold, who just can't quite reach the partner to tag somebody in. You can't get this off you. I can't get it off me. We are unable to not sin. <laughs> unable to not sin. A few other things that we note here um, in, in this string of verses that is put before us. 
In this string of verses, Paul is quoting a lot from Psalms and Isaiah. And, and what he's doing is he's stringing the oracles of God together. And in stringing these words together, these, what he's doing for the Jewish person is he's saying, listen to what your law, listen to what the law of God that you had in your possession, listen to what it's saying to you. And what you're going to see is that sin in this power, sin is chronic in that we are all affected all the time. We're all affected by it all the time. In his own sort of spin on Psalm 14, Paul writes, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Now, before you, you, you say, you know, well, hold on, hold on, you know. I read my Bible on Thursday, and, and, and I pray before mealtime. How can you say, I don't, I don't seek God? Paul's not talking here about our instances of managing to, to do what God's asked us to do. He's already acknowledged back in chapter 2 that, there's some Gentiles who don't even have the words of God or the expectations of God, and they manage to do things that, that God likes, like not kill people or like not commit adultery. That people who don't know God manage to do those things. But what Paul's talking about here is, is there someone who you could say their defining characteristic is righteousness? That their defining characteristic is understanding. That they see the picture fully. That their orientation ultimately is the seeking of God. Paul says no. All have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. You say, but I think I'm different. We do. We think we're different. And if the staggering realities of these words hasn't hit you yet, I'm going to give you a little exercise. Where Paul talks globally, insert your name. There is no one righteous. Not Jonathan. Jonathan does not understand. Jonathan does not seek God. Jonathan has turned away. Jonathan does not do good. Put your name in there. Because God's included you in that as he's included me in that. We see that sin is chronic, we're all affected all the time, it's divisive and that it cuts it off from God and others. We're going to see that it's destructive, it stains us, it violates us, we're, we're marred and disfigured by it. Listen to the vivid language that Paul uses. Again, he's, all, he's quoting all from the Old Testament, he's pulling these things together from the Psalms and from the prophets. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. 
Jesus would say that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. James would write, if you want to know how religious or spiritual a person is, watch how they use their tongue. Watch how they use their words. That's probably the closest indicator. So here, when Paul is quoting the scriptures to them, saying that, that their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, he's He's essentially saying this is arising out of the human heart. For a Jew, this would be total uncleanness. Think about your interactions this week. Did you ever open your mouth and just spread death? over a situation? Did you open your mouth and just just spread uncleanness? Did you infect or poison somebody with something you said? Did you use your words to to subtly shape and and manipulate and craft and, and twist the truth to suit your purposes? Are there people in your life who you know don't really know you, but you have somehow successfully managed through your words to create this facade. And so the you that they know is not the you at all. You haven't broken any laws. You haven't stolen from them. You haven't done anything. But the very basis of their knowledge of you is built on deception. This, this is just what comes out of our mouths. And Paul goes on, their feet are swift to shed blood. We run to violence. Why is it that when we're aggravated and, 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 and when we're, we're, we're upset, when we lack peace, we go to pick up weapons? Why is that our impulse? We go to harm. Our ways are marked by ruin and misery and the way of peace we do not know And ultimately, Paul says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Humanity, as Paul describes it, humanity apart from Christ is living in a world where they do not see God. He might as well not even exist for them. And so the conclusion Paul comes to in verse 5, excuse me, verse 19 and 20 Now we know, Paul's like, now now we know, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Now the reason he phrases it that way, I believe, is because he's he's been in conversation with a Jewish person who's pleading a special case, pleading special treatment, saying... I've been given the rules. I've been given the law. Don't tell me that I'm going to be judged because look what God gave me. And Paul's like, no, no, no. The rules that you're holding in your hand, the rules that you're holding so dearly, the word of God that you're clinging on to, Paul says, that's actually not going to excuse you from the judgment. In fact, you're, you're just as accountable as the person who doesn't have it. That righteous standard of God sits over all of humanity. And so, in verse 20... With a world that has shut its mouth. Because they have nothing to say. 
Paul then closes off the door we so try to get through. Verse 20, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Don't use God's perfect standard of righteousness as your own checklist to clean yourself up before God. You can't get clean enough. Paul says, don't try to go through that door. You manage to open that door, the bridge has been blown out. It's just rubble. You need to find another way. But before we move to our application and what this has to do with us, how we are to live now in light of this, I want I want you to think about that picture of the whole world being silent. Have you ever been caught doing something you shouldn't? And it was so blatant and it was so obvious. You had no words? Do you remember the feeling? I know the feeling. You go, you go to explain yourself? And you open your mouth and nothing comes out. When God comes to fully and finally establish his righteousness on the earth, his judgment on the earth, no one will say anything. Because there will be no excuses. They will know that they are answerable to God. So yes, sin is a force, it is chronic, it is divisive, it is destructive, it is ultimately condemned. And because it is in us, we are left guilty before God. So, what is a sinner left to do? Paul clearly wants there to be a sense of finality here. And so... God's saying, drop the arguments. Don't blame me. Another way of putting it is to say, hey, let's not move the goalposts in our favor. (laughs) Right? Well, yeah, I know everybody's a sinner, but really, to be right with God, you need to be a part of a Baptist church. If you've been baptized in a Baptist church and you've been going there for a long time and you make three out of four, well, things are changing, two out of four Sundays a month and, and you, you manage to go through X, Y, Z, you will be right with God. Well, you know, I know I'm unrighteous, but God, have you seen all that I'm doing in ministry? Have you seen all the ways that I'm serving? God, have you looked at how much money I've given to the church? Have you looked at how much time I've invested? Have you looked at how I treat other people? All that's doing, you're just trying to move the goalposts. God's like, no, you've got to be righteous to the core. Your very being. This is the equivalent of the person who's in denial. The person who gets that horrible diagnosis and says, you know what? 
I don't feel any different. Just going to get a few more hours of sleep. I'll be right. What's the sinner left to do? Accept what God's word is saying to you. This is, this is, this is God being the good doctor saying, saying, you need to hear what I am saying to you until you accept this diagnosis, until you understand just how fallen you are, just how impossible and helpless you are. You are not ready to begin treatment. You're not ready to undergo what I'm trying to do. Listen to what he says. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Or put your own thing in there. By the works of ministry. I mean, if God's own law, if keeping God's own law can't get your sin out, then why do we think something that we've created is going to do the job? By the works, <laughs> no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of ministry. Or by their Christian heritage. Or by their acts of good service by their charity to the poor by their general level of friendliness to whoever they meet by that one time in that one meeting when they decided not to press their own agenda right fill in the blank you're not going to get there I'm not going to get there hear the finality feel the finality And shut your mouth. Shut my mouth. Accept what the God's word is saying to you. Confession of sin is so much better than flippancy over sin. <laughs> Pastor Eddie made a great comment this week at Sermon in Scripture. And he said, you know, Jonathan, I'm looking at this, and I think, I think the word that's really... The person that Paul's talking with is just really flippant about it. He's sort of like the guy who says, you know, yeah, we're bad, but. Like, you know. Kind of know this. We're bad, but, but you know. And there's just this, this, this light treatment of it. Whereas confession of sin, and I'm going to use the definition that Pastor Chris gave, which I thought was beautiful. He said, confession of sin is placing ourselves in God's hand. When you and I open our mouths and acknowledge our sin before God, we are entrusting ourselves to him. We're saying, God, I'm not hiding anymore. I'm putting myself in your hands. If you were here a few Sunday nights ago, we mentioned to you C.S. Lewis's interactions with this man named Malcolm, and he said, isn't God's judgment sort of like tripping an electric wire, you know? If you trip it, you're going to get zapped. And Lewis, I'm paraphrasing here, he wrote back and he said, I sure hope it's not like that. A person can forgive, electricity can't. When you confess... You are entrusting yourself to a being, a living God, who can forgive you. Fifthly, we already talked about this, abandon the way of self-justification. Just, just stop. 
Don't knock on the door. Don't push on the door. Don't, don't try to go down there. Whatever it is for you, that thing that you're leaning on, that post that you're like, uh, you know, I'm not sure about this whole gospel thing, but my ace in the hole is throw it out. Put all your eggs in the gospel basket. Sixth, apply the love test to your obedience. What do we mean by this? When you're obeying God, and I trust that you're here this morning because you have a heart to know God and, and that there's a part of you that says, I'm, I'm wanting to walk with God. I want to obey God. I, I, I believe that. And as you're obeying God and as you're giving yourself to him, apply, apply the love test. And the love test is, am I doing this because of my relationship with God and out of love for him? Or am I doing this because this is a transaction and I think if I do this, then God's going to give me something back. And I think this is beautifully illustrated in Jesus' interaction in the home of the Pharisee. He's there with Simon the Pharisee, who undoubtedly had a good track record of obedience to the laws of God. And then there's this woman who comes in and interrupts the dinner, and she's weeping and crying at Jesus' feet, and she's crying so much that, that she's, her tears are, are effectively sort of washing his feet. And Simon the Pharisee says, if you... If you knew who this lady was, you, you wouldn't want to touch her. You wouldn't want her near you. I mean, think of your reputation. She's going to make you unclean, Jesus. And Jesus said to her, after he told the parable, he said, he looked at the woman and he said to Simon, he says, she loves much because she's forgiven much. There is a link between love and and forgiveness. If your obedience is not being driven by love for God, chances are you've forgotten that you've been forgiven. Or, heaven forbid, <laughs> you and I think we don't need to be forgiven. Apply the love test to your obedience. Listen to the Spirit, not the accuser. There are uh, spiritual forces at work in this world right? The Bible says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, that he is at work here in this, in this world. That the name Satan actually just means accuser. Jesus said that when he went to heaven, after he rose from the dead, that when he went to heaven, he would pour out the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would have a ministry, it would have a service rendered among us. And the ministry of the Spirit was to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And so what, I, what we're saying here is learn to listen to the Spirit because the Spirit's going to convict you of your guilt. Yeah, the Spirit's going to show you where your life's not lining up with, with God's righteousness. He's going to show you that. He came to do that. But the voice of the Spirit is different than the voice of the accuser because the accuser comes to condemn you. Christian, test the spirits. Learn to listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will, will woo you in love of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will not, will not 
placate you with shallow justifications of why you don't really need to worry about all that stuff. Nor will the Spirit come along and lay upon you this sense of hopelessness and despair. That there is no love left for you, there is no forgiveness for you. The accuser also knows how to use scripture too. But it's often the result, it's the result of that message that'll help you identify the difference. Lastly, allow God's word to lead you to Jesus. The problem that the Jews had was that they had the law, they had the expectations of God, and they forgot that God gave them this whole sacrificial system. So at the same time God's giving them the requirements, he's teaching them that, that you're going to fall short and you're going to need something else to cover up for your sinfulness. He gave them those things at the same time. And instead... They neglected this whole thing that they needed to have their sin covered. They thought, well, that's just the ritual side. And then here, by the time in Jesus' day, they're like, we just need to do all the rules. And so they had the word of God, but they didn't let, they didn't let its purpose come to fruition in their life. Christian, the same thing can happen for you. If you open the scriptures and you just read your Bible... Saying, what are the rules? Now, obviously, we're called to obey. But if you don't let the word of God point you to Jesus, send you to Jesus, if your Christianity is not making you fall in love more and more with Jesus every single day, then I don't think you're reading the scriptures right. I don't think you're understanding your life properly. I don't think you're hearing what God is trying to say. Because as you absorb the, and, and, and hear the witness and the testimony of God and his character and his nature, you will begin to realize, whoa, he is, he is different. He is wholly other than me. And I am desperate without Jesus. And soon you begin to just long for his presence. Nobody's perfect, and that's not okay. The bottom line, the answer to our condition is not to deny our sinfulness or to establish our own righteousness. Transformation starts with accepting you and I need to change. We need to have our sin dealt with, and that only God can affect that. Nothing will happen from there. If we, if we don't start there, if we don't start with our utter desperate desperation before God, not only are we just kidding ourselves, but we are, we're not even beginning to step in the path of transformation that God is trying to lead us in. As we come to communion, I'm going to invite the band to come back on the stage. I don't know what God's been saying to you as we've looked at this. Maybe this has felt very familiar to you. Maybe it's felt heavy. I don't know what the Spirit is, is, is putting on your heart. Maybe there's certain things that you've been saying are okay and God's trying to tell you that's not okay. 
Maybe God's put on your heart something that you need to confess to him. Something you need to repent of, something you need to turn from. Maybe you've been convicted that you haven't even gone to God in a long time because you recognize that, you know what, yeah, I am, something's not right in here. And you thought you couldn't go to him. I want to encourage you as we prepare for communion, realize that the reason that we celebrate this is because we are prone to forget that we're forgiven. We're prone to forget that Jesus could do it all. We're prone to forget that there is a righteousness available to us that's outside of ourselves.